Amen. Do make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible today. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it for yourself in the Bible. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Our ushers will get you one. And the good thing about those blue Bibles they're handing out, that's the exact same English translation that I'm using. It's a 1984 version of the New International Version. It's out of print, uh, but I still love this version, so I still preach out of it. And uh, our uh, Bibles we hand out are that same version. Uh, If you're following along in your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 26. In a few moments, we'll begin in verse 31. Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 31. I hope that you're coming today to church thirsty uh, because uh, God has some living water for us today. Amen. This month, we've been really joining hundreds of thousands of Christians across this nation who are crying out for an extraordinary move of God. We're crying out, we're praying for revival to come to the church in America and to come to our nation. Amen? And so today we bring that series to a close, Revival Part 4. Well, I'd like to share with you a story that's more legend than actual history. So if you were to ask a historian about what I'm about to tell you, most historians would say this didn't actually happen, but many people believe it did anyway. So it's more legend. I preface it with that, but I'm going to tell you this story because it makes such a powerful point that I believe ties into our message today. So it was back in the 1870s, the late 1870s, that there was a wealthy family visiting some friends in Scotland. And they were at a Scottish estate, and and the families were having such a good time, they didn't notice that one of the small boys had slipped away from his family. And he was playing around a certain bog, and he fell into that bog, and before he knew it, he was waist-deep in mud, and he couldn't extricate himself. He began to sink and slowly drown. The little boy cried out for help, but his parents were having such a good time quite a ways away. They didn't hear his screams, but thankfully there was a gardener close by, the gardener of that estate. He heard the boy's screams. He jumped into the bog and set him free from it and saved that little boy's life. And so he took this wet and muddy little boy to his parents, and his parents were so grateful. They said to the gardener, if there is anything we can do, we want to give it to you as a gift. And the gardener hesitated, but then he said, well, I I do have a son of my own, and I would love to be able to send him to college and to medical school. He wants to be a doctor, but I can't afford it. And the parents of that little boy that the gardener had rescued said, no problem, consider it done. We will pay for his entire education. Well, a number of decades pass. World War II is over, and their prime minister of England is none other than Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill takes ill, and he's got pneumonia, and they think he's going to die. And so his associates bring in the number one medical doctor in all of England. They bring in the great doctor by the name of Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming was the one that discovered and produced insulin. Excuse me, not insulin. He's the one that discovered and produced penicillin. And so Dr. Fleming is brought in. He nurses Winston Churchill back to health. Interestingly, Alexander Fleming was the first doctor in his family. In fact, his dad was just a lowly gardener. The same gardener that had saved the life of Winston Churchill when Winston Churchill was a little boy. And so supposedly, as the story goes, Winston Churchill, after he recovered from pneumonia, said, it's very rare For a man to be saved twice in his lifetime by the same person. 
And that got me thinking. If Winston Churchill had ever said that, he would have been wrong. Because Jesus Christ does it all the time. How many of you have discovered that Jesus Christ saves us, and then he saves us again, and then he saves us a third time, and he saves us over and over and over again because we keep messing up, we keep falling short, and we keep on needing the Savior. It's a great story, Winston Churchill. (laughs) He wasn't quite right on that one, but thankfully he didn't really say it. But Jesus Christ, he saves us over and over again. This month we've been learning... That revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people, causing extraordinary results in and through the church. And we've been praying for that extraordinary move of God. Our theme verse this month has been Second Chronicles 7.14, where God said to King Solomon, and we believe he also says to us, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God gives us these four steps that we as a church need to take in order to fling open the doors and see the Spirit of God rush in to do what He has longed to do for a long time among us. We need to humble ourselves. Secondly, we need to pray. Thirdly, we need to seek His face and finally turn from our wicked ways. This month we've been talking about how we together need to do these four things. But we're going to shift just a little bit today. We're going to look at ourselves in the mirror. We're going to ask ourselves... Dane, what do you need to do? Christian, what do you need to do to experience personal revival in your life? To have God move in extraordinary ways, not just in the church, not just in your family, not just in our nation. How can God do extraordinary things in me? Amen? We're going to talk about personal revival today. And Peter, Simon Peter, is going to be our example. Well, of Jesus' 12 apostles, Simon Peter is my favorite. Who else has Peter as your favorite of the 12 apostles? I love Peter. Oh, all five of you. That's wonderful. What do you like, Judas Iscariot? Come on. Simon Peter. He's my favorite. I love Peter. I can relate with Peter. Like me, Simon Peter had a big mouth. I can relate with Peter. Quite often, that big mouth of his did a whole lot of good. A few quick examples for you. After Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 1, it was Simon Peter. It was Simon Peter that led the early church there in Jerusalem. And he was the one that led the charge for them to select a new 12th apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. And so he was the spokesman for the church there also in in early books, uh, early chapters of Acts. It's him that's the main spokesman on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He preaches the word of God in large part because of his preaching. 3,000 people repent of their sins and are baptized into Christ that day. His mouth did a lot of good uh, even before Jesus had ascended into heaven. During Jesus' ministry there in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his 12 disciples, Who do you say that I am? It was Peter who stepped forward and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter. His mouth did some wonderful things, didn't it? Well... As most of you know, his mouth also got him into a whole lot of trouble. I've said many times about myself, I live by my mouth and I die by my mouth. Peter could have said that about himself. Never did he fail in a greater way with his mouth 
than in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus had finished eating the Passover meal with his 12 disciples in the upper room. He had instituted the Lord's Supper. He had washed his disciples' feet. Judas Iscariot had already been filled by Satan and had left the room, was on his way to the chief priests to betray Jesus into their hands. And so Jesus, after everything is done in the upper room, he leads his disciples out to the Mount of Olives, those 11 remaining disciples. And as he's leading them out to the Mount of Olives, we pick up in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26. Please follow along in your Bibles, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter, Peter, Peter. My brother from another mother. Open mouth, insert foot. In verse 33, Peter boldly proclaims, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Listen to how Peter's flimsy promise is translated here in verse 33 and a few other English translations. First of all, the New Living Translation says it this way. Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. How about the New Century Version says it this way. Everyone else may stumble in their faith because of you, but I will not. And then the message paraphrases Peter's claim this way. Even if everyone else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. I won't fall to pieces. Huh. I'm sure in the moment Peter meant what he said. In that moment, he couldn't imagine ever abandoning Jesus, ever turning his back on Jesus. He would rather die than deny his Lord. But as Peter did so often, he was quick to speak and slow to listen. Many of you, like me, have, have memorized that glorious verse, James 1.19. Something that I need to keep in mind every day, and many of you agree, you need to keep it in mind every day as well. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What was Peter doing here in response to what Jesus said? He was being slow to listen. He was being quick to speak, and I'm convinced he was quick to become angry. If you read those verses enough, I think you'll see that there is some anger coming through in his response to Jesus. It seems clear to me that Peter was offended by what Jesus was saying. He was insulted by what Jesus was saying. The nerve of my Lord and Savior to say that I'm going to desert him, that I'm going to deny him, After three long years, night and day, Peter was married. I left my wife behind to follow you, Jesus. Night and day, I followed you. There were times we didn't have enough food. There were times we didn't have a place to lay our head. I went through all of this for you, and you're saying now I'm going to deny you so easily? I don't think so. He's a little bit ticked, isn't he? 
Here in Matthew 26, Peter gets all three things dead wrong. He's not quick to listen, he's not slow to speak, and he's certainly not slow to anger. We can relate with Peter, can't we? With the gift of hindsight, we can see that Peter's words were braggadocious and they were naive. But the truth is, his words were much more than that. Think about this. Peter's words here, as he rebuts Jesus, his words are actually satanic. His words are actually demonic. Jesus could have just as easily told Peter here in Matthew 26 what he had told him back in Matthew 16. We looked at that glorious moment from Peter's mouth back in Matthew 16. Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But you go just a few verses further down in Matthew 16 and you find Jesus saying to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. That's a quick turnaround. What happened? Jesus, after Simon Peter had confessed him as the Christ and the Son of the living God, Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to be beat up, that he was going to be crucified, and he'd raise on the third day. And Peter stood against that and said, No, you're not. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. The way Peter objected to Jesus' plan in Matthew 16, don't you see similarities between what he's doing here in Matthew 26? He's doing much the same thing. He is standing in the way of Scripture being fulfilled and Jesus fulfilling his God-given mission. Back in chapter 16, he was standing in the way of Scripture being fulfilled and getting in the way of Jesus fulfilling his mission. He's doing much the same thing here. And so Jesus could have just as easily said in this chapter what he said in that chapter, get behind me, Satan. Take a closer look with me at what Jesus says here in verse 31. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. So as Peter objects in the next verse, in verse 33, he's basically calling Jesus a liar. That's not true, Jesus. You're wrong. All of us won't fall away. I won't fall away. I'll never fall away. In verse 31, Jesus quotes the prophecy from Zechariah 13, 7, where God says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So as Peter objects in the next verse, do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that God's word is not true. He's saying God's word's not true. So in his two objections here to Jesus in this short little passage, he's calling Jesus a liar. He's calling God the Father a liar who inspired the writing of that prophecy in Zechariah 13, 7. And he's saying God's word lies. He's foolish. He doesn't realize his objection is calling God a liar. That sounds a lot like someone else we know, doesn't it? Who likes to call God a liar? Remember a little something in Genesis chapter 3, the first temptation? There Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden in all their glory. Standing in the garden and Satan comes and he says to Eve as she's standing in the garden, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? She says, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, he said we couldn't eat or even touch it. She's already doubting the word of God. And you remember what Satan says next? You won't surely die. God knows that in the moment you eat of the fruit, you will see good and evil. You will be like 
He's been a deceiver from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he was trying to convince humanity that God lies. God does not tell the truth. You cannot trust his word. And so Peter here, unbeknownst to him, is standing in alignment with Satan himself as he objects to the word of God, as he objects to the word of Jesus Christ, and as he objects to the word of God the Father. He's saying, in essence, the Holy Scriptures are wrong. God the Father is wrong. All the sheep of the flock won't be scattered. I, for one, am not about to be scattered. Oh, the mercy and grace of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus turns to Simon Peter in verse 34 and declares, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You would think that at this point the truth Jesus Christ was speaking would sink into Peter's thick skull, but of course it doesn't. If not what Jesus was saying, at least what God the Father and the Holy Scriptures were saying, certainly something would sink in, but alas, it didn't. In verse 35, Peter just doubles down. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And he wasn't alone, all the other disciples said the same well we fast forward to the end of the chapter let's pick up in verse 69 of matthew 26 to see what happens later that night now peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him you also were with jesus of galilee she said but he denied it before them all i don't know what you're talking about he said then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was, was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're, you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter, Peter, Peter. Open mouth, insert foot. A few hours earlier, he was so certain that he would never deny Jesus, never turn his back on Jesus, never walk out on Jesus. According to Luke 22, verse 61, the parallel account of his denials here, Luke says this in Luke 22:61. immediately after Peter denied Jesus a third time, the rooster crowed and Jesus turned and looked right at him. And Peter was devastated. In that moment, his eyes were opened. The full weight of what he had done came crashing down on him. His bold promises broken. His selfish pride exposed. His foolishness plain for all to see. He was a liar. He was a traitor. And he was a coward. And when he realized this, it says he went outside and wept bitterly. Warren Wearsby, I think, offers some wonderful insights on how Peter went wrong in all this episode here. Wearsby writes this. His mistake was that he followed it all. He was supposed to get out. Jesus had warned Peter that he would deny him. Jesus had also quoted Zechariah 13:7. Finally, Jesus had expressly commanded the disciples not to follow. He said that in John 18:8 8 and 9. If Peter had listened to the word and obeyed it, he would never have failed the Lord in such a humiliating way. 
The apostle John was also a part of this failure. For he had followed with Peter and gotten both of them entrance into the high priest's house, according to John 18, 15, and 16. Jesus had warned them to watch and pray lest they enter into temptation, but they had gone to sleep instead. Consequently, they entered into temptation, and Peter fell. Peter fell. The great apostle Peter, the one who stood forward and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The great apostle Peter, the only one of the twelve who had actually walked on water temporarily. The great apostle Peter fell. He fell. And there's no amount of sugarcoating that can change that fact. He fell. And he desperately needed to be lifted back up and revived. I can't imagine how heart-wrenching it must have been for Peter when he heard that Jesus had been condemned to die. We know that he wasn't at the foot of the cross, so he was at some distance. But I imagine someone was delivering a message to him, letting him know the play-by-play. Someone let him know that he collapsed on the road to Golgotha. He couldn't even carry the weight of his cross. He'd lost so much blood from being scourged. Someone probably relayed to him when those nails were driven into his hands and his feet. And that cross was lifted vertically and dropped into the hole where he would die six hours later. He probably heard the words that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, just after the first few minutes, looked down at those uh, soldiers who were gambling for his clothing. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Peter's heart must have dropped as he heard that Jesus Christ was calling out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He saw the skyline go dark around noontime. And knew that that was a sign of God the Father. What he was doing as Jesus was in the process of dying. Three hours later around 3 p.m. Someone must have relayed the message to Peter. Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. And can you imagine how Peter's heart must have dropped? The man who had walked on water. The man who had confessed Christ as the son of the living God. The man who had pulled out his sword on the night Jesus was arrested and cut off part of the high priest's servant's ear. Can you imagine how his heart dropped? And then three days later, to hear Mary Magdalene say that Jesus had risen from the dead, his heart must have been racing. According to 1 Corinthians 15:5, Peter was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. It was clear that Peter held a special place in Christ's heart. And even though Peter had betrayed him, even though he had denied him, Jesus wanted to make a special appearance to Peter after he rose from the dead. He needed Jesus' restoration and forgiveness. And the other apostles who knew all about his failures, they needed it too. Turn to one last passage in your Bible, John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we're going to begin in verse 15 in just a moment. As you're turning there, I'll set the stage for us. In John 21, Jesus is already shown himself to his apostles several times. It's probably been several weeks since Easter Sunday, several weeks since he rose from the dead. He's in all likelihood already forgiven Peter. He's had that one-on-one conversation with him already. But Jesus does something special here in John 21. Peter invites some of the other disciples to go fishing all night with him. They're back in Galilee. They're out on the Sea of Galilee fishing, and they fish all night. And as it happened three years earlier, they didn't catch a single fish all night. 
Jesus is a shadowy figure on the beach, and he calls out to them at the first light of day, Hey, uh, fellas, uh, why don't you throw your net out one last time and see what happens? And they say, Okay, I guess we will. They throw out the net, and it's filled with 153 huge fish. Almost breaks the nets. And that's what happens as we get into this verse here. Verse 15, they brought the fish in. Jesus had a fire going on the beach. They had a little fish breakfast. And then we pick up in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me. I love this passage. One of the first sermons I ever preached was on this passage. It's one of those passages that begs us to ask a few very important questions. Let's ask four of those important questions real quickly. Question number one, why did Jesus call Peter by his birth name instead of by the nickname Jesus had given him? Notice he refers to him as Simon, son of John. It's been at this point probably a year and a half, two years since Jesus had nicknamed him Peter. He did that back in Matthew 16, right after he had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. You are now officially known as Petros, Peter, the rock. Dwayne Johnson wasn't the original rock. It was Simon, son of John. Amen. Jesus said, you are a rock. Why does Jesus call him not by his nickname? But by his birth name here, I believe it's because Jesus and Peter both knew that on the night Jesus was arrested on Good Friday, the rock had crumbled. The rock had crumbled. And he needed to be restored. And so Jesus, in a sense, takes him back to the beginning. And through this whole interaction in John 21, gives him an opportunity to rightfully claim that nickname, the rock, once again. He was going to be the rock that Christ had called him to be. Next question. What did Jesus mean by, do you love me more than these? Bible scholars give three different options. There's probably more out there, but three main ones that are usually mentioned in commentaries. 
Number one, Jesus was asking him, uh, do you love me more than you love your fishing boat and you love these fish and your nets and all this stuff that is a part of your former way of life as a fisherman full time? Do you love me more than all this stuff? Maybe. Second possibility, do you love me more than you love your buddies here that you just spent all night fishing with? Do you love me more than these guys? Maybe. The third possibility, I think, is the most likely possibility. It's the one I believe Jesus had in mind. Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all these guys love me? Because it was just a couple weeks ago, a few hours before I was arrested, that you boldly claimed in front of all these guys, even if all of these yahoos fall away on account of you, I never will. I will die with you. I don't know about these guys, but I'm not going anywhere. I love you more than these guys do. What is Jesus doing? <laughs> Jesus is giving him an opportunity to express his love humbly for a change. And notice how he responds. Peter makes no claim to love Jesus more than anyone else. He simply confesses, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Next question, why did Jesus ask Peter three different times, do you love me? Well, remember on the night Jesus was arrested, Peter had denied him three times. And so three times denied, three times forgiven. He had publicly denied Jesus in front of the little girls and in front of all those in the courtyard. He was calling down curses on himself. I don't know the man. It's crazy talk. What do you mean? I don't know, Jesus. Three times he had publicly denied him, so Jesus gives him an opportunity here on the beach in front of all those who knew what he had done to publicly acknowledge him. And Jesus forgives him all three times, doesn't he? Final question, why does Jesus follow each of Peter's confessions with a command to feed or take care of his lambs and his sheep? I love this question, and I love the answer to it. I want you to notice how the metaphors change. The metaphor I believe that he uses here clues us in to a new mission that God is giving Simon Peter. And this speaks to the grace and the mercy and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Remember back on the beach when Simon first encountered Jesus. It was the first miraculous catch of fish. And he fell to his knees and he said, Lord, away from me. I am a sinful man. You remember what Jesus did? He picked him up and he said, follow me. And I will make you, remember, a fisher of men. Metaphor, fishing, fisherman. In other words, Simon, I am going to make you an evangelist. And you are going to go to unbelievers and lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Notice here the metaphor changes. Similar setting, the beach of the Sea of Galilee, similar miracle, a miraculous catch of fish. Similar situation, Simon Peter feels unworthy. But Jesus doesn't here say, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I think that's a given. He says, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. He changes the metaphors, and now he's making it clear that Simon Peter isn't simply going to be a fisher of men, an evangelist to reach non believers. Now he's going to be 
a Christian leader who pastors the flock. That's pretty amazing to think about. He doesn't simply forgive Peter. He doesn't simply restore Peter. He actually promotes Peter. I'm going to take you further than you've ever been. You reached a certain level before you denied me. You're going to far surpass anything you've ever done. You're going to feed my sheep. Congratulations, Simon Peter. I've just promoted you. Let's say it this way. I think there's a few blanks in your handout you could fill in here. This time on the beach, Jesus switches metaphors. I think it's clear Jesus fully restores Peter as a fisher of men. But here Jesus adds to his role from this point forward. Peter wouldn't just be a fisher of unsaved men. He would also be a shepherd of saved Christians. Oh, the mercy and grace of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that just like Jesus? He doesn't just forgive. He doesn't just restore. He revives and he promotes. Jesus took a big chance on Simon Peter and it paid off big time. Peter was the lead apostle, the chief evangelist on the day of Pentecost, and the first shepherd of the church in Jerusalem. He was used by God to lead thousands of people to Christ. He ended up writing two books of the New Testament that still bless us today, and eventually he was martyred for his faith in Christ. As you read through the book of Acts, it's plain to see Simon Peter was a man on fire, fully restored, revived by the Holy Spirit of God, and God worked in and through him in extraordinary ways. Well, let's look in the mirror. What can we do to fling open the door to allow God's Holy Spirit to touch us personally and work in us and through us in extraordinary ways? And the answer is, the steps aren't any different than they are for the church in America. These same four steps that are given to us in Second Chronicles 7.14, where God says, if my people, those same four steps that are true for the church are true for you and me. So if you want God to move in and through you in extraordinary ways, if you want to experience God in a way you have not experienced him up to this point, if you want to be used by God in greater ways than he's ever used you before, here are those same four steps. It's not rocket science. He gave them to us simply. It's just a matter of actually carrying them out. Step number one, you have to humble yourself. You have to humble yourself. Peter's big ego was blown to smithereens in Matthew 26. He was so cocky. He was so self-confident about his ability to stand strong for Jesus despite the pressure to cut and run. But when the heat got turned up, he did just that. He cut and run. He couldn't even stand up to a little girl. How embarrassing. A little girl challenged his faith. He couldn't even stand up to a little girl. No, I don't know Jesus. How sad. One of the reasons Jesus was able to forgive and restore and revive Peter here in John 21 is because Peter humbled himself before the Lord. He realized he was an idiot. He realized he had been a fool. And he humbled himself before his Savior. And we must do the same. What was true for Peter will also be true for you. If you want Jesus Christ to hear your prayers from heaven, forgive your sin, and heal your broken spirit, then do what Peter did. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. But it doesn't stop with humbling yourself. Step number two, just like Peter, you have to pray. You have to pray. We're not told that Peter spent a lot of time in prayer after he crashed and burned on Good Friday, but 
I think Acts 1 clues us in because in Acts 1 it says the church was gathered together constantly in prayer and Peter was leading that small church in Jerusalem. For 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the descension of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, for that 10-day period, they were constantly praying and Peter was leading that prayer meeting. He prayed like there was no tomorrow and you must do the same. God cannot answer your prayers that you don't pray. He can hear the prayer before it ever originates in your mouth because he knows all things. He knows the thoughts in your head. But he is waiting for you to actually pray the prayer to answer the prayer. God cannot respond to your prayers from heaven unless you pray those prayers from earth. So do what Peter did. Humble yourself before the Lord and pray like there's no tomorrow. Some of us are weak in our prayer lives. And that's why God's power is weak within us and weak working through us. We have to pray. Step number three, we have to seek Christ's face. There's a wonderful little verse that we didn't read here in John 21. It's verse 7. After the miraculous catch of fish, the apostle John looks at that shadowy figure on the beach and he exclaims, It's the Lord! And the light just goes off in Peter's head when John says that and he realizes... Yeah, no one else could have caused that miraculous catch of fish. I I can't fully see him from this distance. But yeah, it is the Lord. And it says in verse 7 of John 21, Peter immediately wrapped his outer garment around him and he jumped in the water. Why did he do that? Is he swimming away from Jesus? Swim away, swim away. Jesus is going to rebuke me. He's going to condemn me. He's going to strike me dead with lightning. No, he's not swimming away from Jesus, is he? He's swimming toward Jesus. He's swimming toward the shore. Why? Because he was hungry for Christ. He was thirsty to be in the presence of Christ. Even as much as he had sinned and denied his Lord, he wanted to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. He was determined to seek Christ's face. So if you want Jesus to hear your prayers from heaven and forgive your sin and heal you, then you must do what Peter did. Humble yourself before the Lord. Pray like there's no tomorrow and seek his face. Make prayer and seeking him a top priority. Spend time in his presence. Finally, step number four. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your wicked ways. Peter didn't just say he was sorry. He proved he was sorry. He didn't just ask for forgiveness. He walked in forgiveness. He didn't just receive a second chance. He made the most of his second chance, didn't he? And I need to ask you, before you put all your stuff away, I need to ask you, are you doing that? Sure, you've asked Jesus Christ for forgiveness, but are you walking in forgiveness? Certainly, you've asked Jesus to forgive you. Certainly, you've asked him to come into your life and and begin working in you. But are you walking in obedience To what you've asked him to do within you. You've asked him to give you a second chance. Are you making the most of the second chance he's given you? Peter humbled himself. He prayed. He sought Jesus' face. He turned from his wicked ways. And Jesus heard his prayers. He forgave his sin. And he healed his broken spirit. And the world was forever changed by the fully forgiven, restored, and revived Simon Peter. No eye has seen, 
no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, what extraordinary things Jesus Christ can do in you and through you if you will simply do what he asked us to do 3,000 years ago. Humble yourself, pray, seek his face, and turn from his wicked ways. And receive the wonderful promises that are attached to those commands. He will. He promises he will hear from heaven. He will forgive your sin. And he will heal your broken spirit. As we as individuals seek the Lord. I pray that we begin crying out. Oh God I've been praying that you would touch my family. I've been praying that you would touch my church. I've been praying that you would touch our nation and bring revival. Oh God, what I've asked you to do in my family, oh God, would you do in me? What I've asked you to do in my church, oh God, would you do in me? What I've asked you to do in our nation, oh God, would you do in me? Would you do it in me? Would you do it in me? Here I am, Lord. Do extraordinary things in and through your church, in and through my family, in and through this nation, do extraordinary things in and through me, not for my sake, but for your glory and for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ here on earth. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. To God be the glory. Greater things are yet to come. Lord Jesus, thank you for the wake-up call of this month. Early last month there in Asbury University, you stirred in the hearts of thousands of young people. And you gave us a small taste of what you want to do in your church in America. To humble us. To have us desire to be in your presence more than anything else. To work in us and through us in fresh, extraordinary ways. God, forgive us for our faith that at times has been, has been stale. Forgive us, O oh God, for putting you on the back burner and not prioritizing you. Forgive us, O oh God, for being negligent in our prayer. Forgive us, O oh God, for being content with sin in our life. I pray, O oh God, that we would be more humble before you than ever before, that we would truly pray like never before, like we would, that we would pray like there's no tomorrow. I pray, O oh God, that we would seek your face and desire to be in your presence. I pray that we would turn from any wicked way in our lives. And just like the psalmist, we pray, O oh God, search me and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Please forgive me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord Jesus, we do believe. Greater things are yet to come. Extraordinary things are still to be done in this church, in our families, in this community, in this nation. But I pray, O oh God, that you would move in us. Move in me. Move in each one of my brothers and sisters here today for your glory and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, today is the day of salvation. The Word of God does not say tomorrow, next week, or next month is the day of salvation. It says today, 
So don't drag your feet. I don't want you to leave today without making a decision for Christ if you need to make that decision. We'll be up here if you're ready to admit that you were a sinner, to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and choose to follow him as Savior and Lord. You come and see us. We'd love to pray with you. Baptize you right over here if there's a need. We've got everything we need, robes, towels. All you need is to be ready. And we're happy to help with that if that's a need. If you're a first-time visitor, don't forget to check in with Carrie at the back table there. Uh, We've got those uh, extra invitations. Grab a pile on the way out if you'd like to invite coworkers, friends, family, neighbors. We'd love to have you do that. Those of you who can join me uh, at the new uh, building at 2 p.m. today, we'd love to see you. Uh, Parents, just see me or Renee if you need some tickets for your kids or grandkids for the skate day. We've got lots going on in the weeks to come, and I can't wait to see what the Lord does. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you as you serve the Lord this week.